Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. Two-thirds of Americans are at risk of experiencing an electrical blackout. You could be one of them, sitting in the dark and cold for hours, for days, maybe even weeks. Are you ready to protect your family? You could be with the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X. These things are sweet because this generator has double the capacity and is expandable. Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater to get your solar generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater. On X Hunt Elite is worth every penny. It really is. Every hunt, every planning session, every gear purchase, I was on it already today. With your Elite membership, you will get application and draw odd tools, exclusive pro deals on gear from the industry's best, exclusive mapping and scouting tools, and last but not least, access to nationwide coverage. And now Canada. On X Hunt Elite will make you more successful on your next next hunt try onyx hunt free for seven days or go to onyxmaps.com slash hunt and use code meat eater for 20 percent off your new elite membership this is the meat eater podcast coming at you shirtless severely bug bitten and in my case underwearless we hunt the meat eater podcast you can't predict anything. Presented by First Light. Go farther, stay longer. Ed Arnett, I didn't know uh, till. I don't think I knew till now. There used to be a bat, like a bat biologist. I did. <laughs> but I, I just can't picture it because I, figure, I always figure you, um, that your biology interests are dovetailed with your hunting interests, but well, they, with bats, they, that's not really the case. They certainly were. I, uh, I I grew up always wanting to be a biologist and wanting to study big game like most biologists, a lot of biologists do. And uh, I, I did my master's on bighorn sheep, so I fulfilled that for a long time. And uh, when I went to work at uh, in the Pacific Northwest, I started working a lot more on non-game issues. And when I went to work for a timber company, Warehouser, I really started engaging in bat research. My PhD was on uh, bats and forest management. Did a lot of work on wind energy and bats. And before I came to TRCP and got to meet you guys, I was uh, running conservation programs for Bat Conservation International and led a bunch of research on wind energy and bat kills across the country. So You mean like bats running into um, windmills? Or not windmills, but... They're being hit by the turning blades. They don't run into them. Bats have a very unique echolocation system, and they that helps them see in the dark. And if there's too many of them that run into things, they're, it'd be what I'd call losers in Darwin's casino. <laughs> they're yeah. not supposed to run into things. So uh, they're getting hit by the turbines. So what was uh what was Weyerhaeuser's interest in bats? So you know like if you if for you listeners if you got a a ream of printer paper laying around there's a very good chance if you go look at that printer paper it will say Weyerhaeuser. 
on it. That's what right. was their interest in uh, in bats? So back in 1990, when I uh, finished up my graduate program on my bighorn sheep study, I went to the Northwest and I was working for the Forest Service. Then went to work with Warehouser. The reason I mentioned the Forest Service job is I started that literally a month after they listed the Northern Spotted Owl. And a couple of years later, um, I, uh, I basically um, applied for this job and got it. And, um, you know, at that time, Spotted Owls were driving a lot of the issues for this forest products Dude, company spot, spot, yeah okay go, go yeah, ahead yeah, i got a comment but it's an that. endangered species issue and so my job uh, we were hired on basically to look at all of the managed forest and all the different kinds of wildlife that use managed forests and how in fact managed forests provide habitat or don't and what we could do in a in a intensively managed forest context to manage all these species that could be listed in the future Back at that time, they were called uh, Category 2 species, which all that really meant was there was a designation that they could be listed in the future. So Warehouser hired a bunch of people, uh, myself included, to look at things beyond just spotted owl and other endangered species issues. Because so, in in their mind, all the trouble that spotted owl, all the controversy and trouble and, and just bad for business stuff that the spotted owl brought on to the logging industry. They were thinking to themselves, what's the next thing that's going to come up and how can we get out ahead of this? That's exactly right. Which is like being a responsible player, right? Yeah, exactly. They were thinking ahead of the game. Whatever their motive, regardless of their motivation. Regardless of the motive, yeah. Obviously, there were business ties to that and community relationships and those kind of being good neighbors and that kind of stuff. But the reality was it was all about, you know, the future license to operate and at that time, and there still are today, a number of species that are potentially going to be listed. So I did most of my work. I shifted from most of the work on four-legged ungulates and, you know, other four-legged critters to nothing but songbirds, amphibians, in-stream amphibians in particular, those that utilize small streams and forests, and bats. So that's how I got into it. And uh, one thing led to another and started working pretty intensively on bats and developed a PhD dissertation project on it and kind of the rest is history. So what was the what was the vulnerability of the bats? Like what was the bats? Timber problem? harvest. Timber harvest. Like they were what do they need it? What were they using timber for? Nesting? Well what they need, yeah. They they need them for roosting, um, for both maternity roosts where they have their young. You're talking in well. hollows in hollow trees. Yeah. Some will roost behind uh, exfoliating bark, so the crevices in bark, and you've seen this walking around the woods. Dead trees, they'll go into woodpecker holes. Sometimes they'll uh, just a just a slight crack in a live tree can create a, a place for bats. So they either roost during the night, you know, they, they do what's called night roosting, but they also have maternity colonies. And sometimes you'll be walking around. Next time you're out in a ponderosa pine forest, you might see a big slab of bark peeling off a oh, yeah. dead tree. There might be two or 300 bats under that thing, just depending on how big the I area is. I have no is. idea, man. So, what, what species yeah. of bat is this? So um, it could be any any of a number of species. Okay. There's what we call the crevice roosting species, and that could be anything from big brown to little brown bats, uh, what's called the long-eared myotis. That was the pictures you were looking at a little while ago in my house. That was a long-eared uh, myotis getting a drink of water. Uh, there's several of them that use, uh, use those crevices. I'm guilty of having not paid a whole hell of a lot of attention to bats in my life. I didn't either. I got until, that kind of like hunt, I got that hunting and fishing problem that you get where you, you like I, I I spent a lot of time observing, thinking about, reading about, talking about 
game either game species or like charismatic animals. Right. Right. So uh, animals that maybe animals that sort of have something to do with hunting and fishing, even if they're only a peripheral player. Right? Like I'm not gonna hunt humpback whales. But I'm interested in humpback whales because when I'm out fishing salmon and halibut and whatnot, I'm observing humpbacks and watching them fish. And so they sort of enter my consciousness, right? But like the bat has never had a real inhold with me. Yeah. And and it doesn't for most people. I mean, most hunters probably wondering if they could hit them with a shotgun when they're out running around in the evening, you know, but the reality is they're ridiculously important to ecosystems and, and the insectivorous bats eat insects at a rate that can all oftentimes render the uh, 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 render that's maybe not the right word but uh, lessen the need for pesticides in, in agricultural systems because they eat so many uh, insects there's some studies in Texas that demonstrate it's into the multi-billions of dollars in terms of the loss of or the reduction of agricultural pests. Um, they, but they are also important pollinators. They're important seed dispersers across the world. They eat just about everything. Those, yeah. that eat, those that eat blood, those that eat fish. Some have specialized hooks for catching fish. Uh, all the bat pictures you've seen around my place here, they're all insectivorous bats, but they, they play a vital role. And, you know, the interesting thing, we, we started calling things like this, you know, you've heard LBJ, the little brown jobs for dicky birds. Oh, yeah, and then, uh, and then and there's LBMs in mycology. LBM. Little brown mushrooms. Little brown mushrooms. Where it's like, yep. if you're out mush- mushroom hunting and you see a little brown mushroom, it's like, just keep walking. Yep. You'll never positively <laughs> identify that thing, you know what I mean? Or, yep. or that's kind of like, the, it's just a term like, we got your, you know, morels, corals, bleats, LBMs, yep. <laughs> little brown mushrooms. Well, we started calling bats and other things like them the uh, not-so-charismatic microfauna. <laughs> yeah, that's a good term for <laughs> But them. they're critical. They're absolutely critical. And it, start, you know, it starts getting you to think about ecosystems and, and you know, biological communities and systems. Everything's interconnected. What well, Eldo Leopold called the cogs and wheels. Cogs and the wheels, exactly right. Yep. You know, I was in, um, I was in the Seychelles. You know where the Seychelles are? No. Like they sit off, if you imagine, if you went due east out of Somalia, way out in the Indian Ocean, the Seychelles are so far removed that no one even knew, they, they had never been colonized. No one knew about them until they came up with like intercontinental shipping. Huh. Like no indigenous people. It wasn't like the Polynesian islands where indigenous people eventually found all the, like Hawaii and everything. No one ever stepped foot on the Seychelles until someone showed up in like in a full-on ship. No one knew they were there, but we were there. And the only native mammal on the Seychelles is a bat. Yeah. Big, huge freaking bats. Big fruit bats. Yeah, that's yeah. what they were. Come yeah. out at night, look yeah. like a jet, like a bat, the kind of bat that would like bite your neck and kill you. Yep. But not. And they are consumed. They like fruit. In, in some, some countries, there's still consumption of bats. Yeah, that was one of the few times I ever paid attention to a bat. And yeah. my kids like to go on, they like it to me to go on YouTube and pull up videos of Aboriginal Australians hunting bats with boomerangs. Huh. Which is like, if you got kids, that's big shit to a kid. Yeah, that's that's, that's Hitting a the bat with a boomerang <laughs> is endlessly fascinating to children. That's a hell of a lot of skill, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. These guys are good, man. And they round them up and cook them. Um, so we've like, I can't remember where we left off. We're I talking can, to eggs. We're going to talk about sage grouse. Oh, yes. You want to add? You got to add? I know where we're left off, but go ahead. I know right where, you know we, where left we left off. off. I do. I wrote it down. <laughs> How long ago was it that we had a sage grouse conversation? A year ago. 
in a, maybe a month. Okay. So we're doing a so, year ago check-in on something. And here's why... Go. go. Sorry. Here's why you should care. Here's why you should care about Sage Grouse. Besides the fact that it's just like a... a it passes the, the test that I put out earlier. The test I put out where like I'm interested in things that have hunting and fishing implications. So there's that with sage grouse. So you know, this is a, a, a game bird, the largest grouse species we have. Um, it's a very, it's an iconic bird that is symbolizes, is kind of a, a, of a symbol of a certain biome or a certain habitat type of the, the great sagebrush seas. Um, and also it's really important to watch because earlier like, we were talking about the spotted owl. If you're old enough to remember the, the spotted owl debate, the spotted owl kind of came this, this sort of bird that was a proxy for a broader argument. And the broader argument was about um, at, to what level do we inconvenience our commercial activities to what degree are we willing to inconvenience our commercial activities uh, out of deference to wildlife? Is that fair, Ed? That's very fair. So it became like it became this symbol of a national debate about if we determine we can make money doing something, but that we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna perhaps lose species of wildlife in order to make that money. Is it worthwhile or not? Like, do we push ahead or do we pull back? And it was sad for the bird because here's this bird has no idea any of this is going on, but the bird becomes like a maligned creature. Yep. The bird becomes like the punchline to a joke. Or a threat. Sure. (laughs) There was a lot of that going around in the 90s. Yeah, and it wound up being like the, the bird's reputation kind of suffered. And in a way, like if you think about these sort of debates, we're sort of in a current thing now with, you know, we're in a current thing now like gray wolves, okay? Where the gray wolf sort of stands in as a symbol of this bigger argument about do, are we going to allow an animal to be on the landscape that is so inconvenient to some people? Live, like it's an inconvenient to livestock producers and a lot of hunters perceive it as being very inconvenient to them. And so what is our tolerance level going to be of this species? And it suffers in a similar way that the spotted owl suffer. And it's always sad to see this happen where the wolf, like this animal that cannot, that would be incapable of comprehending the debate that he's in. Like wolves exist without the knowledge that this conversation is taking place. As they do don't animals, know. Yeah. They have no like it's they don't know anything else of the world beyond their own experience. Like if you ask a wolf in Wyoming, he doesn't know that there's a bunch in Alaska, but they're missing from other areas. It's just like way outside. He just like understands his little realm. But meanwhile, we're talking about them as this big and they become this big symbol. And they become something that winds up being like the animal itself becomes controversial when all he's doing is putting us in a situation where we need to to discuss our tolerances. But he becomes sort of a victim of it. That's all like a preface to say that right now, if you want to understand wildlife politics and kind of where we're headed and the kind of conversations that we're going to continue to have, the current version, the current spotted owl, like today's spotted owl. Real quick though, Ed, what happened to this? How's the spotted owl doing now? Is he good? No, they're not off the list yet. They're not off the list? No. Um, And just to add one quick thing to that, you know, they became the poster child and in my view, um, 
really kind of resembled the metaphor of you can't see the forest because of the trees in front of you. And everybody focused on spotted owls, but it was really about that ecosystem yeah. and about accelerated harvest of old growth forest and how important old growth forests were. We learned a lot about, you know, at that time there wasn't an immense amount of research, particularly in managed forests. And I think we learned a lot about you know, how you can manage structural features and habitat features for the animal without necessarily having older forests, but you have older forest conditions. And, but what I think a lot of people realized in with the spotted owl as the poster child, that this is about an ecosystem that's vital to so many different creatures. And you can manage, you can, you can preserve old growth forests, but you can also learn and also manage for habitat in, in managed forests as well. Yeah, and in the same way that that spotted owl became a poster child or symbolic of old growth forest, what we're going to talk about now, like with sage grouse, the sage grouse is sort of standing in as this as the poster child of sagebrush. Yep, and I, like a, a better one, a thing that would ring with more people perhaps would be if the if the, the if the American pronghorn or, or antelope were in as rough of a spot as the as the sage grouse is i think people might be seeing this differently more well-known creature and just kind of more like there's just like kind of like a cooler it's just bigger it's more recognizable yeah you know you show picture people that animal they're going to know to start a conversation about sage grouse you almost got to be like okay here's what one looks like because a lot of people don't really know right but to to wrap up the point i was making earlier in, in leading into this this conversation that, that we're having about incon- like economically inconvenient animals and, what, and how much do we curtail activities in order to ensure that we don't drive species to extinction. And when we talk about extinction, it's, we're talking about making things gone forever. This conversation will always be going on. It's just the players will change. That's right. On the wildlife and the human front. Yeah. The wildlife and that's good because you know what? At a time, if we hadn't figured out electricity, um, and we were dri- you know, when we were driving uh, some whales to extinction and driving some whales to near extinction in order to make fuel oil for city lamps, we would have been having this conversation in the eighteen hundreds. Yep. Instead of when we did. Yep. But the whale was saved by electricity. Or probably uh, no other petroleum, <laughs> yeah. By other things, no, Among not electricity, yeah. yeah, but but right. uh, fossil fuels. Yep. So, which is at the heart of this discussion? Which we, yeah, sage which, 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 yeah, to bring even more full circle, winds me about this. So we're going to talk about sage grouse, but remember, when we're talking about sage grouse. We're talking about a current version of something that will always be happening in our society, in our country, which is a country that places a tremendous value on wildlife, and also. We place a tremendous value on economic prosperity. Yep. You know, um, if I may, before I tell you where we left off and start into that, you also made a point in the last podcast that really hammers home on this because you were talking about, you'd think if you went to the Philippines or some other place, you could just catch the hell out of fish. And not always the case. No. And there's that linkage between uh, that social and economic component with conservation that's vital. I mean, we want wildlife in this country. We have um, a variety of laws and principles that we work from to keep wildlife. We have, you know, the legacy of Theodore Roosevelt and, and all of the people that he worked with and were colleagues with and thereafter that, 
you know, define that social um, desire to have wildlife in our landscapes. And then we've been trying to figure out that economic balance ever since. But make no mistake, if we had 500 million people in the U.S. and hardly any resources, we wouldn't have very many wildlife either. That's the funny thing I find. Like, this is, uh, you know, like guys that like to get all uh, ready for like societal collapse, like prepper type yeah, guys. Yeah, yeah. They're always like, real fired up about like, having the right kind of hunting guns. Like, you'll see them online debating, like, what's the perfect gun for post apocalyptic hunting scenarios? It'd be like, dude, post apocalyptic scenarios or like societal collapses in failed states generally mean there is no wildlife right yeah you don't have a fail you don't have a like robust wildlife within a failed state that's right wildlife that is point. the first thing that goes yep and that was your point oh was i talking about that well that was the whole point of i thought you know the discussion about the philippines where you're talking about going fishing and hard to confine a fish because I, of the impoverished scenario. I was reading It's not going to just turn into the frontier days again. Huh? Yeah, like, like, yeah, like right. B- yeah, yeah, bison magically. coming through the road. <laughs> no, this one guy, this one prepper I was reading at one time, he was talking about, he's like laying it out for his buddies, and he's like, hey, here's the thing, though, man. In a real post-apocalyptic, you know, societal collapse scenario, you need a gun that's real good for rats and dogs. <laughs> because he was like, he's planning on, he's going to be eating these rats, but he thinks that the dogs are going to be out trying to kill you. That the dogs are going to pack up. Like this is the level of detail. Like 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 prepper guys get into. He's got it all sorted out. Yeah. But uh, all right. So a year ago, where was the? Can you just lay out for me what's going on with sage grouse? Like, okay. What's going on in general? What was going on a year ago? And then we're going to focus on what happened since a year ago. Okay. So when you and Ronnie were out hunting and we hooked up and talked about sage grouse, it was days, literally days after the um, decision was made as a not warranted decision by the Fish and Wildlife Service to list and provide protections under the Endangered Species Act for sage-grouse. Meaning they they looked at the sage-grouse issue and tried to figure out, like, do we need to make, give them Endangered Species Act protections? Correct. Yeah. Ran ran all the numbers and said, you know what? We thought we might need to, but we don't. Well, they didn't run, they ran a lot of numbers, but there was a lot that went into that that we'll get into on what it took to get to that decision. But not everything was in place, and that's why it's so important for our talk today about what still isn't yet in place, per se, and what's being considered. But what led up to that were decades of research, a lot of concern back in the 90s from biologists, not, 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 not you know, uh, NGO. Well, I got, um, I got, it's killing me. I got to interrupt you. Go, go ahead. Can, can you back up 150 years? Oh man, <laughs> not 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 detail level, but tell yeah. how. Like I know it's impossible saying this, and like this kind of question drives biologists nuts. How many of these birds were there? Where were they living? And how much has their habitat been reduced? Okay. And how much has their numbers been reduced? Just so people kind of understand, like, well, how this even came to be. Yep. Um, they are an obligate of sagebrush, which means they cannot live without sagebrush in their lives so you didn't have them in the east or the south or in illinois or you know in the mid heart of the midwest you know so so went the sage grouse as sagebrush did so they were everywhere where there was sagebrush and at that time there were 14 states i believe at least three provinces um that had extensive sagebrush habitat there was an estimate, and I remember we talked about this because you asked me if I knew where the 60 million bison 
uh, figure came from. It was guesstimated, I'll say, at best, 16 million sage grouse at the turn of the century, you know, okay. near, you know, before the turn of the century, before and, the Europeans. Who knows if that's sa- correct? And the sagebrush, like portions of the sagebrush seas were like the 100th meridian and west in mm-hmm. the Great Plains and then the Great Basin. Yep, that's right. And they no longer exist in three states, so now we have them in 11 states. Uh, it's estimated that about 50% of the habitat's been lost. Uh, and that was one of the metrics that led the service to consider uh, the species for listing. They've lost half their habitat. It's been fragmented. It's been degradated. Um, there's all kinds of threats to the remaining habitat. And the numbers have been going down for a long time. Now, as you all know, um, game bird populations fluctuate on an annual basis, sometime on you know eight to 10-year cycles. But it's all tied to precipitation and the quality of the habitat. Like and they the, can, the right rain could double their numbers. The wrong hailstorm could have their exactly. numbers. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so they always have these oscillations on any given year. But the long-term trend has been about 1% decline since 1965 up until the last um, figure in that particular um, study that, that I often reference through the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies was 2015. In 2016, they, the numbers went up quite a bit. Uh, this year, they're, they're down more, so they, they fluctuate. But the long-term trend has been down, and that's largely because they've been losing habitat. And if, even if there's sage brush out there, it doesn't necessarily mean it's quality and good condition that, that renders it suitable for the birds. So that's part of the reason that they were even being considered to, to be listed in the first place. We were down somewhere in the neighborhood of two to 400,000 birds which in and of itself isn't necessarily an alarmingly low number. But the longer you kick that can down the road, the more likely it is to go down to maybe, oh, 100,000 or 200,000. And then all of a sudden you're at 50 going, oh, shit, now what do we do? Yeah. And it may be irreversible at that point in time. Would you call uh, sage grouse an indicator species? Yes. And we often refer to them that. Another term would be an umbrella species, whereby if you if you manage habitat across a landscape, for that particular species, you're very likely to encompass a variety of other critters that, that live in that system. We often use that term. What's the term? It's like, it's not, it, there's a term that's it's like a similar like Bergman's rule or Bergman's principle where it's got a name attached to it. But there's a term for when you have like, like with uh, um, passenger pigeons, you can have 3 billion of them and they're fine, but somehow you can't have 50,000 of them. Hmm. There's like a word for this. That just sounds like a tipping point. Like, yeah, there's, you a, point hit, which, a, point, there's a point at which there's a point at which like you could never maintain a, you could never maintain a species that we now know. You couldn't maintain a species of ten thousand passenger pigeons. Yeah, it has to be that there has to be like a million or none. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. Maybe I'm um, making this up. You remember? Well, I can. I don't. I can tell you really? one term. Sometimes yeah. people confuse with the indicator species is keystone. That's very different. If if sage grouse were to somehow miraculously go away, and we certainly hope they don't, I doubt there is a keystone effect. If you take wolves out of an ecosystem, and we saw this with Yellowstone, you can have cask or beaver, for example. You can yeah. have huge impacts on other other parts of the system. Does that make sense? Yeah. If the sage grouse goes, you're not likely to see some like cascading series of antelope like, ecological going belly. Yeah, up. you won't see like yeah. some ecological collapse. Yeah. However, though, um, if sage grouse go, 
That means their habitat's gone, so my guess would be a lot of other species would go with them. Yeah. So Not we because we they went, but because if they exactly. went, it's because the sagebrush is gone. If the sagebrush is gone, you're going to lose 27. That's exactly right. Or some some profound number of, yep. you know. And as we've discussed before, to, to the question on the indicator species, there's 350, at least 350 species of plants and animals that are dependent on the sagebrush ecosystem in some way, shape, or form. And including some big-time game animals. Exactly. Mule deer, antelope, elk. Yeah, and we probably both have stories on chasing deer and busting sage grouse. I got a current one from this buck my cousin and I just killed, and uh, there's sage grouse busting up all over the place while we're trying to put a sneak on this damn deer. Yeah. So they, they utilize the same systems. If you've learned anything after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, it's this. There's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month, when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, no way, can't be true. But there isn't a catch. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those savings directly to you. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited-time deal and get premium wireless service for just 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash meeteater. That's mintmobile.com slash meeteater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meeteater. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Man, I've had a Helix sleep mattress for years, and man, that thing is nice. The Helix lineup, it's just comfortable. It feels good, and you don't get all like not all like hot and sticky in the summertime it's not cold in the winter the helix lineup offers 20 unique mattresses including the award-winning lux collection the newly released helix elite collection a mattress designed for big and tall sleepers and even a mattress made just for kids take the helix sleep quiz and find your perfect mattress in under two minutes. And your personalized mattress is shipped straight to your door free of charge. Helix knows there's no better way to test out a mattress than by sleeping on it in your own home. That's why they offer a 100-night trial and a 10- to 15-year warranty to try out your new Helix mattress. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash meateater and use code HELIXPARTNER20. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Meal prepping and thinking about what's for dinner all the time can be a real stressor. Well, using ButcherBox helps relieve that stress. With ButcherBox, you're always prepared with good quality meat in the freezer. It's the ultimate convenience with custom curated boxes shipped right to your door with free shipping, which means fewer trips to the grocery store. It's hard to find the same value at the store because what store can you go to where you're going to get free protein for a whole year alongside your order? Plus, they have a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value with exclusive member deals, and they make it even easier on you 
with recipe inspiration, guides, tips, and hacks. With ButcherBox, you don't have to worry about what's for dinner. ButcherBox is offering our listeners their choice of weeknight meal essentials. Three pounds of chicken thighs, two pounds of ground beef, or one pound of premium steak tips for free in every order for a whole year. Plus, you get $20 off your first order. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash meat eater and use code meat eater to choose your free offer and get $20 off. All right, so back to our timeline. Yep. Uh, so, the Department of Interior, at the time, Sally Jewell? No. Yep. Secretary Sally Jewell. Oh, okay. Inherited that from Ken Salazar. Ken Salazar kind of started all this with the, you know, um, and made uh, some good headway with the states, and then and then Secretary Jewell came in afterwards. Um, the uh, the states were working on their individual state plans uh, back in 2010s when this really kicked off because there was in fact a lawsuit that that said uh, what what happened back uh, prior to the 2015 decision. The bird was determined to be warranted for protections under the ESA but precluded. And what that meant was they definitely warranted those protections, but there were a bunch of other species that had higher priority that were ahead of them. Okay. So that's what the precluded part means now. And that was the wake-up call to the states and to industry that right. you better sort this out or it's going to get real bad for you. That's right. And what really kicked that off, and you'll hear a lot of people talk about the sue and settle scenario. It, there's no doubt there was a lawsuit that forced the decision, and, and Judge Windmill, who was the federal uh, judge that was handed this uh, this lawsuit, said, "No, Fish and Wildlife Service, you're going to go back, and you're going to you're going to actually make a determination. But I'm going to give you five years to do it." So that's where that whole timeline came in. If that hadn't happened, who knows how serious people would have taken this? You always got a good crisis, got to have a good crisis, you know, to start doing something. It seems like our history is replete with that, unfortunately. But the proactive is always uh, got to be a little less than the than the reactive. So this was a reaction to that lawsuit, and everybody did take it serious and started putting state plans together. The federal start uh, agencies start working on their federal plans. The service is trying to get their head around how this is all going to stitch together into a comprehensive strategy that would get them either to a warranted or a not warranted decision. And what? Yeah, they, and just to, let me just yeah, sure. step in just so people follow the yep. kind of like when I say that it was a wake up call. Like if a species like let, let's say the sage grouse, if the sage grouse were to get listed and and get Endangered Species Act protections. That is going to shut down a lot of land use activities in places that are vital to sage grouse. So one thing is damn sure is going to happen is you're not going to hunt them anymore. That's right. So hunting seasons are done. Done. What it also done is a lot of cattle grazing, sheep grazing operations are going to be affected probably. But primarily is going to be like energy development, energy extraction. That industry is going to be just locked out of a lot of places. So when we say a wake-up call, these guys might have never paid any attention to sage grouse. Hunters definitely do. Someone says, you know what? I, see a, I sense a long-term problem for sage grouse. I'm going to say that I'm going to, I'm going to argue that they, that they should be listed under the ESA. And I'm going to sue the feds for having not done it. The feds look at it. They come up to a settlement that says we need time to determine, to, to figure out if this is true or not. 
Now, all these groups from guys that sportsmen's groups like to hunt them and any other business in states that host this business are like, holy shit, if this goes down, our economy goes down. Yep. So we now are all of a sudden real interested in sage grouse. Yep. That's the impending crisis that kickstarted everybody's it's uh, the hammer. It's yep. like the hammer over your head. Yep. Yep. Is the ESA. And now there's a big movement to try to make the ESA the hammerness not so hammer like. Right. This was, but that's a whole other conversation. A whole other conversation, <laughs> but yeah, pull some teeth out of that jaw. Yeah. Well, to bring that full circle back to how we started this, how I got into bats, that's exactly what Warehouser saw with what happened with the spotted owl. It literally shut down entire communities. We're not talking just, you know, three of us getting kicked off our job. We're talking entire parts of states going, you know, having true economic collapse and and the industry saw the kinds of revenues that were wrapped up in in the protection zones and they said okay we can't do this again let's start let's start being more proactive that's why i was hired to study bats it seems harsh but it's one of the beautiful things about america is that, that there's some like elements of america that values wildlife so highly yeah but so okay, which is unique. So to get back on track here, yep. I want to make sure we, we we get this covered. So so that's all going on, and you you were just getting to okay. The state started to be like, who, what, what's the sage grouse? Yeah. Um, you want me to describe a sage grouse? No, no, no. Oh, I'm okay. saying that you're, oh. we're getting to the part. Oh, where they're just, going. Yeah, yeah. Where the states saying, hey, are all of a sudden getting real interested in what yeah, a sage what, grouse is. Why why do we care about this critter? Yeah. So, you know, the states started putting their plans and make make no mistake the state biologists have been watching this for a long time it just sometimes it takes that looming crisis to oh, really like they were aware the, of this they were yeah, aware yeah. of it and they had they were been doing things research monitoring some habitat projects those kinds of things but there wasn't a you know a comprehensive strategy for many of the states wyoming led the way they started it in 2008 um and then other states followed and so you had all these state-level efforts going on. You had the federal agencies putting their plans together. And then in 2010, you had something pretty extraordinary, which was the National uh, Natural, yeah, Natural Resources Conservation Service, NRCS, put an initiative together called the Sage-Grouse Initiative that was pumping millions and millions of dollars into private landowners to incentivize them to change their grazing practices do uh, do some fencing and water type projects that were favorable to sage grouse, all kinds of different things, cut juniper trees, and it incentivized conservation on private lands. So you have those three legs of that stool that kind of put together made a good, solid, comprehensive package. In addition to a fire strategy, a firefighting strategy that crossed political boundaries between feds and states and counties and I don't want to get into that because that's an extensive conversation in of itself, but just make no mistake, firefighting wasn't always as coordinated, and it probably still has some issues today, but at least there's a plan and a strategy in place to try to fight fire in the Great Basin in particular, where fire is a huge threat to sage-grouse habitat. And in fact, I think in Nevada, they lost well over a million and a half acres just this year. So you could say it's not working, but the reality it burns is... it and just, other shit beats it out. Yeah, yeah. Well, cheat, and cheat grass, cheat grass comes back, and it's a vicious cycle with that cheat grass because it's a real flashy fuel that burns burns even uh, more extensive than... So, so you had a catastrophic so. fire, 
destroys the sagebrush and the sagebrush just never gets the leg up because it's getting beat out by it, invasive plants. it takes a long time to come back and yeah. it varies you know some it depends on precipitation elevation and the vegetation community right so you've got site potential on any given piece of land that you can grow certain kinds of vegetation really well and sometimes you can't yeah and that you know as you go up in elevation and to get into like mountain big sage systems with with higher precipitation um they have more resistance and resilience if you will to fires and they come back more readily than out in you know parts of the great basin just as an example where there's much lower precipitation different soil regime that kind of thing but anyway all those legs of that stool were really important for the fish and wildlife service to say okay we've got federal plans that are pretty solid um we've got a lot of state plans uh of varying degrees of uh, ability to address all these different threats to sage grouse we've got these private land efforts lots of money going into that and we've got this firefighting strategy that's what got them in a comprehensive way to that not warranted decision none of those things probably could have stood alone on their own you needed that comprehensive nature so they were they were able to say like all right we trust all these like inner like these interrelated plans and parts that you've put in place we trust that that you're going to recover sage grouse that's in essence that's exactly what they said now and when that when that announcement came because there was a big deal like you know you had the governors from several states yep all collected there's a big speech did people were people really thinking that they didn't know what the answer was going to be um like how serious were they on the stage when they were no, no, not, not I care about the stage, not like that particular. But I mean, like, like was it? Did you know all along? Like, here's a predict. Okay, like here's another issue. Oh, okay, like I anticipate that Pebble Mine in Bristol Bay will not happen. I believe it will never happen. Right now, were there people that said the listing will never happen, or was it really like it, people really felt that it might? Nah, I happen? don't think anybody felt that. It was I, like a, it was a I, real possibility. Yeah, no, I that was an absolutely real possibility, no question about that. Sorry, I didn't follow your line there originally. No, I'm with I you. um, no, I don't think anybody sat back and said ah, that's never going to happen. They may have in 2010, um, or even before that, but I can assure you, leading up to it, everybody knew that that was was a very strong possibility. Yeah, and I don't think anybody really knew. Up until the day of the announcement, except those that, of us that were really working on it extensively, I felt just as a biologist, just thinking about what the determinations of threatened and endangered mean and, you know, the criteria uh, by which they decide those, um, you know, I thought about it in that context. I thought about it in what I could see playing out on the landscape. I didn't think they could get a warrant they should get a warranted i felt it it would be a not warranted with all of those pieces in place however like if, I, if they're looking at the same data you're looking at you feel like it should be on i felt i didn't feel i didn't think they could withstand legally a suit if they did list the bird with all that in place i really gotcha. i really felt like we had enough to now that gets to the question of okay how much is enough what do you want how many grouse do you want we're not going to have 16 million again or whatever the hell the number yeah. was so you so you're saying that that uh you're saying that had they said we're going to list the sage grouse you felt that that you could have beat them in court i think uh, if someone would have sued to say that was an inappropriate decision as was done with lesser prairie chickens a few years ago that um 
the the court would have said no i think there is enough here you, you you're gonna have to go not warranted mm-hmm. gotcha um now mind you after the not warranted was was put in place lawsuits came on both ends of the extreme you had uh you had the hard left, uh, some of the hard left environmental groups that sued because they didn't think it was enough, and some of the industry groups sued because they thought it was too much. Yeah, remember, and Sally Julie like, even said, a- "I think I must have hit the mark because I got somewhere in the middle." Yeah, yeah. I, I had a, I, I recently had a, a politician tell me that he always knows when he's found his spot when the far left and the far right are about the same mad yep. because then I know I've probably got about where I need to be. Yep, but but <laughs> it was like it was generally. In the in the hunting and like in the sportsman world in the hunting world, it was generally applauded the not necessary because people were so euphoric about uh, the fact that all these like disparate groups came together on behalf of this bird. Yeah, yeah. So people thought of like this new conservation strategy. Yep. That you could that that people could come together, sportsmen's groups, industry. The political world could come together, see a problem coming down the line, address the problem effectively, and not need to get into the game of 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 using the Endangered Species Act. That we were going to like solve problems in some kind of way of like working together. Everyone's making a little bit of sacrifice. Everyone's putting up That's with right. a little bit of inconvenience and stopping and preventing it from becoming a cultural war. Yep. And and I want to talk about that just a little bit because I experienced firsthand both the spotted owl approach and in that era and and sage grouse and they're they were very different and you, you hit the nail right on the head. We brought all of these groups together to talk about this. Now it wasn't as proactive and and uh, as as maybe we needed to. Maybe that should have started back in two thousand five or two thousand. We could have got ahead of the curve even better, but. It's not that back in the days of the spotted owl that the regulatory agencies weren't talking to the industry. They were talking to counties. They were talking to all the different factions. It's just, it was just different back then. You know, it wasn't as comprehensive and, and cohesive as it feels like the sage grouse effort was. And mind you, there's a whole lot more players on the sage grouse front than there were on the timber industry, you know, on the uh, spotted owl issue. And that really wound up being kind of a one-size-fits-all. You hear that rhetoric all the time, one-size-fits-all, federal top-down. That's really not how it was. Some will argue with me, and that's fine. They can argue all they want. But the reality is the sage-grouse issue was a little bit more organic and a little bit more uh, uh, you know, driven by state-level uh, players and, and local working groups, collaborations with the states and the feds and the, and the counties and all the different uh, industries, the sportsmen's groups were involved. Hell, we weren't involved with spotted owls. Because um, nope. guys like me aren't interested. <laughs> Nobody was going to shoot a spotted owl, you know. And, and uh, But, you know, we weren't thinking as big about ecosystems then. Yeah, if you yeah. think about spotted owls, you start thinking about tule elk, for example, or some other, or, you know, or other types of species that we might hunt in, in old growth forest systems. But we weren't thinking like that. We weren't even invited to the table, the sportsmen's groups. And, you know, that that plan, not to get too far down the spotted owl path, but the reality is that plan came down after a presidential summit that Clinton held. They brought some players together. The spotted owl plan. Yeah. yeah, and they brought some players together. Then the feds went back and wrote it. 
and implemented it specifically to federal lands. It's not that private lands weren't considered or somehow regulated, but they weren't part of the bigger picture strategy. And I can remember even having discussions when I was doing some of my bat work talking about, um, you know, uh, the, the role of private lands in, in endangered species in the Northwest. And and spotted owls weren't on, on our lands weren't even necessarily considered as part of the recovery okay. process because it was all about reserve systems on federal lands. Okay, so that really was kind of a one-size-fits-all kind of a strategy. And back to your question, how they doing, they're not doing so good. And maybe if we would have done it like the sage-grouse way back then in the 1980s, yeah, it might have been a different outcome because they weren't even really considering private lands that much. Private lands were still regulated, but it was just kind of written off that the managed forest doesn't provide anything for spotted owls. Yep. We've got to conserve them this way with a gotcha. preservation system. That's not at all what happened with the sage grouse. And again, kind of point I was trying to make is we've always talked to these different factions, but we never we haven't done it in the way we did with with uh, the sage grouse issue. It's a new way of doing conservation. I think it's the way we have to do it with anything this at this stage forward. Landscape scale, multiple species, and everybody at the table from the front end. And that doesn't mean every individual or every group, but you get those diverse voices in on the front end counties, get them engaged. county state exactly. sportsman groups yep industry and that's how you're going to get to making both both ends of the extremes mad probably because you find enough players that are willing to work to a compromise to the middle yeah and that's what this was in my humble opinion and then so, and, and then, then what happened a month or so after we spoke last year we had an election so where we left off you gave us a hypothetical, like you like to do. We're going to bury ourselves in a time capsule right here in this spot where we were doing that podcast out in the sticks. And five years from now, where are we going to be? And I, I expressed lots of optimism, and I, I didn't say it then, but I'd say now, oh, we're all going to go hunting sage-grouse and do a celebratory hunt. Uh, I was pretty optimistic because I felt... Like I told you earlier, I felt like they got to a not warranted in a legitimate and credible way. It wasn't perfect, um, and everybody sacrificed something, but we got a good comprehensive strategy that I didn't feel um, was going to yield sage grouse winding up on the, you know, the threatened or endangered species list at some point down the road if it was implemented. That's the key. So earlier you said crunching the numbers. Well, part of that was crunching the numbers to see what the trends in the habitat and what the trends in the, in the numbers of sage-grouse were doing. But what the Fish and Wildlife Service used extensively in this decision was something called the peace policy, P-E-C-E, -E, the, the policy to evaluate conservation effects. It's a policy that was put in place in the early 2000s. And what it basically says is that when we make a decision about it, and we, the Fish and Wildlife Service, are making a decision about a threatened or endangered species, we will look at things that may manifest in the future. There's some regulatory certainty or some kind of uh, administrative policy or some level of certainty that these things are going to be implemented in the future. Yeah. And we can consider that as part of our decision. And I can assure you that was extensively used in this particular decision because the federal plans haven't played out yet to, yeah. to their fullest like, extent. If you're like, go to some guy, you're going to buy the house from the guy. And you're like, man, you know, the porch is falling off. And the guy's like, listen, bro, 
I'm going to fix this porch before the sale goes through. And you're like, okay. Yep. I'm trusting that the porch is going to be fixed. Yep. And you come back and, and buy you, the house. And you go on and do the deal because the guy's going to fix the porch. Yeah. So what happens when you come back and it's not fixed? You get mad. There was no, no. insurance. <laughs> no, but if you sign that in a contract, yeah. in the agreement that you sign when you buy a house, it's like we agree to these things. You come back, it better be fixed or I'm going to sue your ass. Yeah. That's the, it's a pretty good metaphor because that's basically what the Fish and Wildlife Service looked at. I've got signed federal plans. These are amendments to the resource management plans for the BLM and the forest plans for the Forest Service that codifies. They're going to do these things. That's an assurance to the service that something's going to happen in the right direction. Okay. Um, the, the, and it, it, uh, when we left off before, it was kind of like, there was a lot of promises had been made, but the fulfillment right. stage hadn't begun. That's yet. right. And we were like, what, six, eight days after they'd been signed. Yeah. The ink was hardly dry. Now, if I pop out of that time capsule <laughs> up there in the middle of nowhere, Wyoming, where y'all were hunting sage grouse, and we were chatting about this, I don't know. I think it's, uh, it's up in the air a little bit, but I'm still optimistic that we're going to do the right thing. And what has happened since then... We had an election and a change in administration. Secretary Zinke is now in charge of the Department of Interior. Um, a couple of things that happened uh, in between there, somewhere in about January or February. Remember, we've talked about some of the bad language, and you've helped us with some of this on uh, the National Defense Authorization Act and some of these bad writers on these policies that basically was handing over uh, management authority to the states gave gubernatorial veto power over any decision on sagebrush lands and the federal lands, those kinds of things. Not, not necessarily the best policy that we would, we would agree with, and we advocated pretty strongly against that. We'd only seen that come out of the House. In February, we saw a Senate version of that, and that, that woke us up a little bit that now all of a sudden there may be some potential traction here on both houses. Like where, where the House and Senate, so the U.S. House and Senate, your congressmen and senators coming and saying, you know, on second thought, let's not do what we said we we're going to do to save the sage grouse. Yeah, let's do something different. Let's yeah. let's hand it back over so to the state. We're in a let's different, cli- we're in a different climate states. now, yeah. different political climate, yep. different administration. Yep. I wish I kind of wish I hadn't said all that shit because it's not kind of inconvenient. Yeah. But that. That woke us up a little bit, and only to the extent there were political motivations for the why that was done and such, and we don't need to get into it. But the reality was, we now had a House and Senate version threatening some pretty bad legislation. So one of the things that we thought would be interesting, and we worked with uh, the Department of Interior at the time for, was to get a secretary. We knew there were issues with the states. Let me back up just a little bit. I mean, look, not everybody got what they wanted. Some of the grazing community was unhappy with certain prescriptions and some things that were playing out in the plans. Um, there were mining interests that were, were fired up. Um, there was, um, and this gets a little bit in the weeds, but... There was a designate a prescription, if you will, in these sage grouse amendments that were solidified in September of 2015 that added a designation called focal areas. Now, what these were, there's about 35 million acres across BLM land of, of uh, pro- what's called priority habitat. It receives the highest priority and the most restrictive types of prescriptions to manage sagebrush. 
you can't occupy the surface a certain number of miles or some buffer distance around the breeding grounds for for sage grouse um other kinds of prescriptions that just basically try to keep it intact and and in in good habitat quality and condition so on top of that about a third of those acres about 10 million acres of that was scheduled for what was called these focal areas and it would and they had to uh or they uh, the suggestion was to withdraw them from mining so basically it removes them from the 1872 mining law now this gets complicated but all you have to know about the 1872 mining law i mean it was kind of a land rush kind of a of a prospector's um uh, law back in the 1870s where you know it allowed people you and i go out and stake a claim on public lands we just go out and look yeah it allows people to go look for for um minerals without even asking the federal government's permission now you can't do anything with it until you get permission that's a permitting issue and such but it allows you to go stake a claim and if you have a valid claim um it it takes precedence over surface rights so subsurface can always take precedent over surface rights so if i literally didn't own my in my four acres here in that back lot there if i didn't own my mineral rights literally an oil and gas company if they owned my mineral rights they could come in and put a well right back there in my yard yeah, today because your because your service rights cannot obstruct their ability to get That's their correct. mineral to That's get what correct. they want out of and it. that goes back to the mineral leasing law act of 1920 i believe as well so so this was a way so I they mean, had 10 million acres and they and they wanted to withdraw all um withdraw those acres from mineral claim and okay, basically but okay 10 million acres would, would be withdrawn from mineral claim how many million acres would be withdrawn if the bird had been listed? Oh, that's a really good point. Um, Hundreds of it, it. Yeah, it could have been a lot more. It would have been a lot more, potentially. Hundreds of millions. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, not hundreds of millions, but there's only a couple hundred million. But it, it certainly, wherever there were minerals in sagebrush, it would have been impacted, no question. Yeah. And really what it was, it was, it was, it was a reserve. Uh, ecologically speaking, the concept is sound. You know, you're trying to get, it's really the only way the Fish and Wildlife Service can get ahead of the 1872 mining law is to withdraw those mineral right, you know, those opportunities way on the front end of planning. And that's what they were really trying to do is saying, these are the, this is the best of the best habitat. This is where we'd like to see minerals withdrawn. And these are basically reserves for sagebrush. And yeah. it also set prioritization of, you know, a, a variety of other things, vegetation management, firefighting, all those kinds of things. But I can tell you that dropping that designation on top, and, it, and keep in mind, it's a subset of the priority habitat. So it's already designated as priority habitat and already has various restrictions around it that are codified in the in the resource management It's just like, right instead, of, instead of super protected, it's super duper protected. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and um, if they went away, it would just take the duper away, yeah. <laughs> really. So, um, but by law, you have to do a, an environmental impact statement um, on the withdrawal specifically. And to make a long story short, in Nevada, the, the, it, this went to the courts, uh, mining industry and others sued on that. And basically the, the court said, no, you have to go back and do, you violated the National Environmental Policy Act. You have to go back and do a supplemental EIS, environmental impact statement to supplement the ones that are already existing. And, and so that was decided. And then the, um, the mineral withdrawal part of that 
was decide was basically decided upon a, not very long ago, a couple of months ago, where the the, the BLM just said we're not going to we're not going to we're going with the no action alternative of this EIS, which is we're not going to withdraw minerals from these areas. So that was the decision that was made. So now you have these focal areas, but you can still do mining claims within them. So basically, they're managed just as if they were priority habitat. Very okay. little has changed. But that designation of focal areas came down pretty pretty late in the game, and it made a lot of the states mad and a lot of the players mad, and it's become a hot-button issue, a the red industry, flag issue. State, states and industry players. Yeah, and it, it really has become a hot-button issue. A couple other things that are in those plans um, that are, you know, there's argument from the oil and gas industry about density disturbance caps. There's a maximum amount of disturbance that you can have in a particular landscape because sage grouse are very sensitive to infrastructure development and disturbance from vehicles and all the things that go with developing an oil and gas well or a wind facility or anything else. So there's caps to that and buffers around the lecking areas or the breeding sites where males go to to find, find the girls. And they're very sensitive to that disturbance. So there've been, the science basically supports that you know, once you get over a certain amount of disturbance, you're going to start seeing you know plummeting population uh, numbers of males at least attending the lex, which theoretically track with the population. So there's arguments about that. There were concerns about grazing prescriptions. Uh, notably, there's a seven-inch double height. The desire is to have about seven inches of grass available when the birds are nesting for nesting cover, so they can avoid predators. Um, everybody's hung up on that seven inches. There's actually quite a bit of flexibility in the plans, but there are many that want that removed, which would take an amendment. It would take a full-blown plan amendment. And so there's all kinds of concerns that were generated. And that led um, Mr. Zinke to do a review of the plans. And we, we were supportive of a secretarial order that tried to address these issues with the states rather than blowing it up with this bad legislation I was leading to, alluding to earlier where yeah. we now have a House and a Senate version. It's like, okay, this has got a little more traction than it used to. A better way would be for the secretary to try to address these very specific issues that, that may or may not affect grouse you know, deeply in the long run. Yeah. Maybe it's just adjusting the boundaries a little bit or or changing, changing a few pieces of the prescription, you still yeah. get the same outcome in the long run, but you get rid of this toxic language, that kind of stuff. Gotcha. So they, they, they kind of quietly come in, what are the problems? How can we fix the problems right. without really damaging the plan? Right. And, exactly. And you were hopeful for that kind of treatment. Yeah, exactly. And what we were really hoping for, well, and we were hoping that the secretarial order would be very specific to the issues. But what it did was it called to get, put together a review team, and that review team consisted of the Fish and Wildlife Service and, and BLM and, and some other players that were charged with basically looking at all these plans and listening to the states, listening to the stakeholders, and try to determine what the issues really were. Now, that in and of itself is not an egregious act. If you or I were voted into Secretary of Interior next, next time around. Appointed. Uh, appointed. Yeah, I mean, you'd want to you'd take a look at what the predecessors did and just make some assessments. There's nothing wrong with that. 
But our concern was how Mr. Zinke was starting to talk about sage grouse. He was talking about managing population numbers, and he was talking about captive rearing programs to predator control, all these kinds of things that people have talked about and thought about a lot, but he wasn't talking about them the way biologists would talk about them. He was actually talking about them, in my opinion, as if they were going to be mitigation tools to open up oil and gas, but you just captive rear a few birds and throw them out and all's good and well okay but here here you're you're getting into an important piece that we need to back up on yep because the original plan to recover sage grouse dealt with not going out and just counting up birds right so not going out and saying like how many birds should we have but it came down to looking like how much how many birds and how much available habitat, habitat. because right. a hailstorm at the wrong on the wrong day in the spring a hailstorm can cut your population in half that's theoretically right. that's right by cracking the eggs yeah all this stuff is habitat based so you can how destroy a whole got? you can destroy a whole like brood like you know what do you call a bunch of uh a brood a brood you yep. can destroy a, like a whole area's brood well a clutch and then when they hatch it's a brood okay yeah Clutch, clutch. yeah. So you could have a bad hailstorm on just the wrong day. Yep. Cracks thousands of bird eggs, let's say. And so then you have a falling population. If you just go by bird numbers, it's not particularly telling because you could have a really good situation where you're like, there's so much habitat. That's right. So much food. I have no doubt that next spring we're going to totally rebound because all the stuff, the hard to get shit's there. The birds will be fine. If you give them the habitat, that's right. And this is what conservation always comes down to is like it, it generally, when people are talking about like a conservation issue, the, the pot, the wildlife populations respond to the habitat. Yep. It's generally like watch habitat. If you look at the work, like if you go look at the work that Rocky mountain elk foundation does the work, the national wild Turkey Federation does ducks unlimited. Oftentimes these organizations are very focused on available habitat, knowing that the animals will take care of themselves. That's right. If you give them a place to do it. So, so the idea of like the recovery plan for sage grouse was really focused on habitat. That's right. The new idea is, you know what? Let's just count birds and we will raise them in a pen and turn them loose and then count. Yep. So if we don't get the number that we want, we'll make it that we get the number we want by just letting them go like chickens yep. and then counting at the right moment and being like, see, they're all there. Which is fatally flawed and doomed to, doomed to fail. But almost kind of cynical. Right. It's like, oh, you want birds, do you? Here you go, buddy. Naive answer. I'll turn some loose time. tomorrow. <laughs> Which, if we learned anything in other wild bird, in other wild bird recoveries is that pen-raised birds don't work that's right especially for native grouse in the wild turkey yep they spent millions thinking they were going to recover the wild turkey with a cap captive reintroduction program and the and then what it wound up taking was it wound up taking that you would capture birds capture wild birds whose ancestors were wild and move those birds into new areas and you would recover the population yeah that's yep. what it took with turkeys. Yep. They, they spent, the Turkey Federation in many states spent a small fortune learning that lesson. Yep. Well, and look at Atwater's Prairie don't Chicken. Work. Atwater's Prairie Chicken. I mean, the only reason we really still have any Atwater's Prairie Chicken is because of a captive rearing program, but they can't get the birds 
that have been captively reared to then raise their own young out in the wild. Something so they, is lost. So you just got to keep dumping them. And you're in this perpetual cycle of having to put birds in the landscapes to say that we still have Atwater's prairie chickens. Yeah, if you want to get a so. census, if you, so it'd be interesting. It might even exist. Someone should draw up a map that shows, like, the ringneck pheasant is not a, you know, like, so as much as you see, like, pheasants, pheasants, pheasants in America, the ringneck pheasant is not a native bird. Right. Right. If you'd made a map showing, they'd be interested to have a map of the U.S. with one color showing where we have pheasants and one color showing where we would have pheasants if it wasn't for releasing programs. Yep. That'd be an interesting map. That'd be map. an interesting map, yeah. Chuckers, too. I can map. tell you, the one, the, the part that shows where we'd have birds if it wasn't for supplemental stocking would be way, way, way smaller than the part showing where pheasants are. <laughs> yep, it would. You know where they first reintroduced pheasants? No. Willamette Valley, Oregon. Did they? Yep. It's the first place they reintroduced pheasants. No, no. Yep. In Young Guns. Um, yeah, yeah. And That's Young right. Guns, he kicks up a pheasant. Yeah. And I remember thinking, were there pheasants around back then? Yeah. Or is that too, uh, they get their stuff wrong. But in, yeah. in uh, Last and Mohicans, they kill a red deer, a red stag. That's right, in the east. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to pull that kind of stuff that? over on hunting guys, man. That's right. We're like, we watch movies and we're like, we always know when we smell something fishy with the wildlife. I used to like watching the old Johnny Weissmuller Tarzan movies and I'd hear a bird in the background and go, that's a freaking pileated woodpecker. <laughs> Not endemic to Africa, I'm pretty sure. So, all right, anyway, so, so, yeah, so they get the idea. Yeah. Y- you were just getting to that the, that the incoming yeah. secretary starts talking about birds in a way that, yeah. That doesn't sound like we're that doesn't sound yeah. like we're on this sort of thing about how we're gonna yeah. save the bird by That's right. protecting habitat. That's right. And you've also got an administration that is promoting energy. It was independence, now it's dominance. Uh, we just saw a report come out uh, recently from the Department of Interior on energy burdens, and as you get you guys might imagine, just about anything could be considered a burden to development. Um, so there's a lot of things aligning that make us concerned and nervous about this amendment process. And, you know, it's no different than opening up the Endangered Species Act or any piece of legislation. If it's targeted and specific to increasing efficiency and effectiveness and those kinds of things, that's hard to argue. But, you know, everybody starts to want to hang an ornament on the Christmas tree and all of a sudden it falls down. So, you know, the the motivations behind um, the review in my opinion, were fine and solid. I'd want to review things that a predecessor had done before, but how that plays out is going to be interesting because we have yet, as I said about the peace policy earlier, that not warranted decision was predicated heavily on things being implemented into the future. And not all BLM offices are implementing the plans in their fullest extent. There's a lot of confusion right now about where this is all going to go. And, you know, some some states and some offices are moving right ahead and some are still trying to figure it out. So, but regardless, we have we have yet to see full-blown implementation across the board across sagelands of these plants. So, there's now weird, there's kind of a weird sort short-sightedness going on, right? Where if you have an administration come in who an administration come in where they like they they not real worried about the bird more worried about industry and then you let the bird falter you need to like think ahead because we have a thing that happens in this country where we have wild political vacillations political the pendulum swing as we call it and someone else might come in in four years or in eight years 
another person is going to come in and they're going to have their own appointee for the secretary of interior. And they're going to look and be like, sons of bitches. Never did do the sage grouse thing. Right. Now <laughs> I am going to list them. Yeah. The, the fact that people go like, oh, the current climate will always be here. So let's just screw this whole sage grouse thing. You'd think that you'd still be real interested in solving the problem because you're not always going to have your people in charge. Well, you're, you're interjecting long-term thinking and rational thought, Stephen. <laughs> not yeah. everybody thinks that way, you know? I mean, you know, sometimes industry thinks out to the next quarter, and that's a, a, a year out, maybe. Now, that's long-term thinking and planning. And look what happened with the Spotted Owl, now that we've used that as our, one of our talking points in this. That pendulum swung hard and too far hard, in my opinion. I mean, we haven't seen meaningful timber harvest in a lot of places, particularly the Northwest, but for a long time since then. And I mean, now we've got like forest old, issues. Like old growth logging just shut down. It just down. shut down. But a lot of logging on public lands is shut down. There's not much of a timber industry here in the Rocky Mountains either, quite frankly, a little bit. But, you know, you as you guys drive around and hunt, you can see dead trees, lots of standing forests. You know, there's, there's just, it was a big pendulum swing back then. Um, but prior to that, it was swung the other direction. They were they were cutting federal lands as if they were private lands to some extent. So, and they, and make no mistake, the industry was warned well before the listing of the spotted owl. I know the people that did the warning back in the seventies. They said, "Look, this is going to be an issue for us, and we need to deal with it." And really, about the only thing that happened in the in the years to to come, right before the listing, was increased accelerated timber harvest, which exacerbated the issue. Yeah. So almost, almost in a, in a, in a, gosh, if we don't have the, ha- in, a, in the sense of if we don't even have the habitat, we won't have to worry about this. But it didn't quite work out that so way. That, so that, 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 that like thinking of the next quarter, like profit earnings for the yeah. next quarter, next year, and very few people looking at what's business like in five yeah. years. And this pendulum now is going to swing back eventually. Dude, and I'm, it listen, it's, there's no way if, if they don't get, if they don't get serious about this problem. There's no way that in, that in four years someone's not going to say, like, son of a bitch, we should have got more serious about this problem. Yep, that's right. And, you know, I'm, I'm still hopeful, back to our time capsule thing five years from now, I'm still hopeful because we haven't, nothing's really been done yet. Um, it's, but the stage is set. And so the amendment process, so let me back up a little bit. So this report comes out um, midsummer or so, from the secretary. The secretarial order came out and said, we're going to review these plans and look at them all, look at all these issues. It generated a list of issues that people had. And then this review team, which is a very credible group of individuals, put together a matrix of actions. So some of them were short-term, some of them were long-term. So for example, um, if they wanted to completely eliminate these focal areas, it would require a plan amendment. If they wanted to change certain prescriptions in um, the, the grazing section, that might require an amendment. Now, the amendment process in BLM planning is extensive. At minimum, probably 18 months, it could go out for another three years. So some of these things that need to be fixed, we felt a lot of those things could be fixed with just clarification, training, better instruction on here's how you need to implement these things. Others, um, might require a plan amendment, but our position was, why don't you let this play out a little bit and just actually implement the plans, gather some information, and see what needs to be fixed then. But there's a rush. You know, people are kind of looking at the clock, and this administration may or may not be around 
in 2020, and it's going to take three years probably to get through this amendment process. So now what's happening is there's an, uh, they're going to open up the plans potentially for an amendment process. Right now they're taking public comment on um, the federal plans and whether they should be amended and changed, basically. So you've got them codified now in the current resource management plan that was, that was changed in September 15, uh, 2015, that got us to the not warranted. Now they're looking at changing it. We haven't even hardly gotten started yet. So, so where's the where's the like the, the sportsman community at on this now? Well, if you look at like the, like the hunter based conservation community, where do they tend to be on what should be happening? Well, I know of no mainstream or or uh, other type organization that is engaged or cognizantly cognizant and aware of the issue that really wants this opened up, except a couple of fringe element type groups. But the vast majority of the sportsman groups don't want to. To, to open these plans up they want to get them implemented i mean everybody like that adju- I know adjusted refined them. implemented sure i mean look no credible scientist or biologist would say that it's a bad idea to make something better if you got data to prove it <laughs> i mean but the problem is they don't have a lot of existing information to demonstrate that something will or will not work so for example if the industry wants to come back and say well gosh you know we don't think this disturbance cap of a maximum of five percent in some landscape area is correct we think it should be 20 percent they don't have any data to prove that i can assure you but they may lobby to have it changed yeah they just don't have any scientific information to back it and that's kind of been our position from day one if there is science underpinning a buffer distance or a disturbance area uh, cap in an area or whatever the prescription is let's use that to improve the plants but there's a lot of those areas that, in my humble opinion, don't have that science. And it's, it's not supported and substantiated. A lot of times what we'll hear industry say is that a lot of the energy studies, and there's probably 25 plus studies that have looked at energy impacts on grouse. None of them say energy development's good for grouse. That's one bit of information. All of them collectively pretty much say that it's negative at some level. And, you know, I, I'm a scientist. I can pick, or at least I used to be a <laughs> practicing scientist. I can, I can find a hole in every piece of every study that's out there. I mean, ecology isn't perfect, and you can find a hole in a study. But the weight of evidence, and this is like the, the way I like to couch this, the weight of evidence is very clear that energy development at certain levels has an impact on the bird. There's just no denying that. But one of the arguments is that, well, all those studies looked at the old technology. Now we've got the new technology where we can put multiple pads on or multiple wells on a pad, which is true. Um, We have less disturbance on the landscape. That's true as well. But at some level, that doesn't that argue doesn't matter. It's still disturbance on the landscape and the birds are going to respond at some level to that disturbance. So it doesn't matter if you're drilling horizontally three miles out or straight down 300 meters it's still infrastructure and there's still disturbance. So, um, you know, they're going to have to demonstrate that it's more than just new technology that, you know, they have information that would demonstrate there's a reason you can shrink those, those buffers or, or expand them or whatever. Yeah. So, and I haven't seen that information yet. So it'll, but there's a lot of efforts that are ongoing now and new science that's coming, but, but the bottom line is we've got to implement these plans and, you know, there, there's some tweaking of the plans that can happen right now that it's, like I said, if, if the focal area boundaries were 
you know, to somehow disappear. I don't think grouse are going to disappear. I also don't know that it's necessary to completely open up the plans to do that, but that may be where they go. But the the thing people have to remember is that it's just a sub-designation within that broader designation of priority habitat. All of that habitat is still going to be managed. Yeah. You know, unless those prescriptions change. That's our concern. So what's, what's the next step for people? Like what, what should people be, if people are following this issue, what's the thing they should be doing now? Well, the public needs to, to express their, and our sportsmen's community need to express themselves. We've got an open action alert now. And basically what we're saying is that, you know, some targeted amendments that are supported with scientific information, you know, could be acceptable. But don't be throwing the baby out with the bathwater here. And by the way, Governors Meade and Hickenlooper, who you've shared the stage with and know their work quite well. Republican and Democrat. Yep. Both working on sage grouse. They're saying the same things. Let the plan work. Let the plans work. Let the collaboration work. Don't make this a federal top-down war on the West, as some proclaim on, on different sides of the aisle. I mean, it's not that different. Let this play out and work. Some targeted changes can be acceptable, but don't don't be making major whole scale changes. So we've got an open action alert now, um, and you can just go to the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnerships website and take action on sage grouse. And basically, what it says is that we don't want to see whole scale changes. We want to see this collaboration work. Um, targeted changes, maybe in the future, but uh, that's kind of what it basically says. Have you ever wondered if you could, like, pull off cowboy boots? Then you should pull on a pair of Tacovas. You will see. They'll become your new favorite footwear. Now we're going to throw it to Chili. If you know him, he is a cowboy boot aficionado. Dude don't like to cross the street without his cowboy boots on. Hear him out. People want to know when to wear Tacovas. Date night. I'm not a very fancy guy, but when I put my Tacovas on, I feel very fancy, and my girlfriend seems to like them too. Now, if you can't make it into a store, Tacovas delivers the most premium quality and most comfortable Western goods right to your door. Visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com, and point your toes west as a special opportunity for our listeners. Tacovas has said they will throw in one of their best-selling trucker hats or ball caps for free into any minimum purchase of $100 on Tacovas.com. Just use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's about a $30 value, and they sell fast, so they're always updating with new styles and looks. Again, for a limited time, enter code MEATEATER at checkout to add a free logo hat to your order as a one-time gift from Tacovas. only at Tacovas.com. Hey, everybody, I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who over recent months I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it. It is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, Watch that video. And in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released. 
which is true. But now for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company. Working knives for working people. 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. On X Hunt is always striving to help make hunters more successful in the field each season. This hunting season, they will have a bunch of new features to help you on your next hunt. These features include new aerial imagery options like leaf off, recent imagery updated every two weeks with historic look back, and imagery on demand. On top of that, OnX is reinventing the trail camera market by syncing your hunt app with multiple cell camera manufacturers and helping organize and analyze your photos. You can also now view your maps in Dash when driving to your next hunting location. These are just a few of the many updates OnX has for this hunting season. Try OnX Hunt free for seven days or go to onxmaps.com slash hunt and use code MEATEATER for 20% off your new OnX Hunt membership. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the app I use most. I love it. I cannot picture life without it. Use code MEATEATER for 20% off on your new OnX Hunt membership. So that's what they should be doing, but they should also, you know, people should just be aware and paying attention to and it kind of comes back to what you said. This is a new way of conservation, in my opinion. And many of my colleagues and many of the people you talk to say the same thing. Uh, you know, the way the sage-grouse plans and this whole manifestation of conservation strategy to get to that not warranted decision really was a, a, a miracle and, a, and really a, a a major milestone in contemporary wildlife It was management. like such a piece of good news, man. It was. It was like this euphoric moment. It was. And again, not everybody got what they wanted, and some of the fringe elements are really pissed and, and fired up. But the bottom line is it was a hell of an effort to get it there. Now we got to make it manifest on the landscape because right now there's a lot of areas that are just paper birds and paper habitat. It's all in a, in a document. Until it manifests on the ground, that's when we get real habitat and real birds. That's what we got to have happen. You know, the thing from my personal perspective that this always makes me think of is that if you're like, like, Hunters and fishermen really, it's almost like you don't have a political home. Now, this is me talking to person. I want to implicate you in this. But it's like you don't have a political home because the political world's too dirty. Like from the left, okay, like the, again, the, I'm not implicating Ed in this observation at all. But from the left, from the Democrat side, you have like an atmosphere that's not, cult, like is culturally, oftentimes culturally hostile to hunters. Like right, right now, there's a thing in Arizona. There's a referendum coming up in Arizona to ban lion hunting and bobcats. I, I promise you a Republican did not put that up. Right. Okay. So we're always getting attacked. On the Democrat side, you're always getting attacked culturally. People are trying to like restrict your rights, mess with wildlife management, give like New Jersey cat ladies sort of an outside vo outsized voice in how we manage wildlife in America, ban certain hunting practices. You're just getting attacked all the time there. Firearms issues. And then from the Republican side, we're always going to attack on habitat issues. Yeah. It's like, I want to start a new political party. I call it like the Roosevelt party, which is going to be like any Bull kind moose. of, so Bull any moose kind of, party. yeah, the Bull Moose party, any social issue would be like, no comment. It'll be fiscally conservative, robust military like 
ardently pro habitat. Yeah, I like that. And like maybe make a that a new social liberal, maybe a little socially liberal too. To socially sure libertarian, socially libertarian. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, privacy of your own home, bro. Yeah, right. <laughs> like a strong respect for that. But generally, social issues, no comment. You'll figure it out on yep. your own privately, please. Yep. But uh, it, it just sucks, man. And and I know, like I, I know a good many people in the political world, like who are like people who are willing to work in a bipartisan way from the right and from the left to come to like good decisions and like have wildlife in mind. Like those people do exist, but those people are generally regarded as like very quiet individuals. Yeah. The, and most people in America like can't understand people who speak in a pragmatic, quiet way. They can only understand just like in like loud insanity or not yeah. understand, but they, but they, they, they like it. Cause it's like, Oh, I get that. I can get that so easily. That's yeah. easy for me to understand. Complicated shit. I don't want. I don't have time to, for complicated shit. I want the one sentence fix. Yep. And you wind up. It just gets so frustrating, man. And these are complicated issues, right? And they're hard to put in one sentence, but you have to because I mean, you guys do this in, in television all the time. You've got a message in a way that resonates with a much broader audience than than the three of us sitting here. And I had to do that when I was doing my science. Now that I'm glad we brought up the Weyerhaeuser connection, we'll just come back to that because I, you know, I remember being a scientist in that organization, but you had to also be a pretty good communicator with those that didn't want to know. They just didn't want to know about all your science. I was even told one time, it's like, we hired you because we thought you were a good scientist. I don't want to hear all that shit about statistics and such. Tell me what it means, what the bottom line is, why should we care, what's the bottom line for the business, and how can we fix it? So you've got to you got to break things down and make it important to the to not in this case managers but to the public. It's like why is it important? Why should you give a shit about sage grouse? And not that many people probably do in the big picture until you put it in a broader context. Because and how we learn to address the sage grouse issue is gonna is gonna have implications for every other situation when this comes up, and this right. will continuously come up. And right now, we're talking about it with sage grouse. We're talking about it with wolves in the upper Great Lakes. We're talking about it with grizzly bears. Tomorrow, I don't even know who we're going to be talking about. So my about. prediction is the northern Great Plains and the short grass prairie, that prairie system there is going to be the next sagebrush and sage grouse. Mm. And, and the we, ducks, right? Well, and sharp-tailed grouse, prairie chickens. We, yeah, we had a big conversation about ducks a long time ago. Yeah. With the, you know, the prairie pothole region. Yep. So yeah. And look at we'll the probably, Bakken. We'll look have at, it. Look again. at the look at the Bakken. Look at wind development in that kind. Of, that that area is considered the Saudi Arabia of wind. And the only reason it hasn't been developed extensively is there's no transmission right now. So, so it's like we, we either have there's a lot forthcoming, and we yeah, need to be thinking like, big. But to get into a situation where we can look at conservation issues and look at wildlife issues and sort of make like a template for how to approach long-term issues that will insulate them a little bit from wild political vacillations. Yep. And I think we know how to do it. I mean, I'm not going to tell you all the science is there, but I've been playing this game a long time. And, uh, you know, the reality is we've got the tools. We've got a good chunk of the science. We know conceptually how to do adaptive management, which is learning by doing. We do something on the ground, we monitor it, and then we fix it and do something. You know, we've got all those kinds of tools and now we really know who all the players need to be. We just need to incentivize 
the conservation efforts and make every give everybody skin in the game. And I th- I've always said that if we've got to make conservation an investment, not an impediment, and we're doing that, you know, in a lot of ways, but we need to do it more because we're not growing any more acres. No, I can tell you that we're losing acres. <laughs> if and you look the, at coast the coast, it's like we're losing acres. We're not going to grow anymore. We got to do good with what we got for sure. And, and it's like it's, it gets even more complicated because I feel like you know, Secretary Zinke's done a lot of great stuff with access issues and other things. But so it's like he's in a situation where you're constantly it's like getting heat on one thing, right? And, and you're trying to like satisfy and do some you're like clearly trying to do some good things for sportsmen's access and other issues, and getting hammered on other stuff. So it's like it's hard for a person to find that happy ground where just the radical right and the radical left are pissed. It winds up being very difficult for political operators to work in the situation. And just yep. to look at the sage grouse issue, like here's another complicated thing. Those people, like, like the people in industry, have been screwed before. Oh, yeah. yeah. And Western and states have been screwed before as they keep getting screwed on, wolf, on the wolf issue and on the grizzly issue where you're like, you came and said, we agreed. We agreed what grizzly bear recovery looks like. We talked about it 20 years ago. We've met that for 13 years. The moving goalposts. So it's like, and we made a plan on wolves. Do you remember? We talked about what wolf recovery would look like. We achieved it. Why do we still have to talk about it now? So they do get screwed on stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, and I think screwing them on those things coming from the rat there coming from like screwing them from the radical left perspective winds up making people put up walls and not wanting to have conversations that could be more effective. Yep. Well, it's part of one of the consequences of partisan politics and we're very partisan now and that pendulum swings back. My fear is that it swings back the other direction too far. Yes. Can't we figure out a space in the middle? My new political party. You know? Yeah, exactly. I like that. Dude, when that party's in the middle. <laughs> the one in the middle. Well, I'd, I'd sign up for that party. Yeah, when I get that party pretty, going and we got the House, Senate, White House, I have all, we, we have all the Supreme Court nominees. Wildlife's going to be solid, man. Yep. Well, Good we'll be, hunting and fishing. <laughs> and we'll make conservation an investment for everybody's future. And, and good mountain lion seasons in all appropriate locations. <laughs> Yanni, you got any concluding thoughts? Well, yeah, you were telling me the other day we were talking about um, – uh mountain men i believe right and how like everybody's talking about how you want to go back in time like see what the country was like back then right and everybody has these like visions right i have those and that's what we hope for well i think like now is the time to to try to like look to the future and think like that our kids are going to want to go man wish i could have seen what that sage receive was like back yes. then wish i could have seen all that that was pretty damn cool and we need to really keep that at you know like keep thinking about that because it's so easy i think to forget with all the just it is the partisan stuff of it you know and you just can't get wrapped up in emotions and just think about the big picture it doesn't matter what political party you're affiliated with like we all want to like look back and kind of we wish we could see what this country looked like a hundred years ago, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's funny. That, that's almost something that people like universally agree about. Or people are interested in, I mean, this is a wide net, right? People are interested in wildlife, hunting, American history, Western history, pioneer history, Dan Boone, whatever. People who are interested in that sort of shit 
generally are like, holy smokes, man, it would have been great to see what Lewis and Clark saw. So pay attention to that little part of your brain because that little part of your brain is telling you something important. Do you want to strive for a future that works looks more like that or less like that? Yeah. Yeah, the catch is don't, don't hang up on it ever looking like that again, but think about what it did look like and what you could do to make it look as close to that as possible into the future because it ain't going to be the same. We yeah, and let's have not have this conversation about pronghorn antelope and mule deer. Exactly. Please. If we get, well, to, the, 20 if we get years, to that point. We'll be talking yeah. about listing, like mule deer listing. Yeah. Are they going to give ESA listing to the mule deer? Because we weren't paying attention to when first, people first started bringing up to us 30 years ago that, that yep. the mule deer is going to need some little teeny bit of help. Well, I've told you this. I told. I, I think we talked about this in the last cast on, uh, on, on Sage Grouse. This wasn't a shock. This didn't manifest in 2005 or 10 and wasn't court ordered. Right. I mean, it was court ordered, but that's not what the driver was. The driver was we drug our damn feet for a couple, three decades. When we were warned, same thing with spotted owls. The industry was warned, but there was no hammer immediately hovering right over the head. And that's the problem. We've been reactive throughout the history of wildlife management. I mean, there's just so many examples of that. And we're damn lucky we got what we got, back to the whole notion of what other countries have or don't have. So we have a lot of incentive in this country to have conservation and wildlife well, we got to get out of, uh, and we've been having these conversations a lot on the ESA. I've been working with Governor Meade's uh, um, Endangered Species Act initiative from the day it started. And now we're into a little bit more conversation about how do we avoid having to use the endangered species in the first place, which was one of my fundamental tenets when I gave testimony in the first conference. Well, I think had. we figured out how to avoid using it, which was on like bringing a bunch of people together to yeah. figure out how everybody's going to give a little bit to make the thing. That's work. right. And being more proactive and putting money on the front. It's like going into the mechanic after you drove the, the vehicle for three more thousand miles with low no oil, oil change. No yeah. oil change. Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, you blew your engine. <laughs> yep. you know, should have saw me earlier. Probably could have done that for 40 bucks. Just saw me earlier when it was just come down to an oil change. Exactly. You know, just to return to a thought, man. And this is kind of me just operating in my own mind, but like Aldo Leopold in Sand County Almanac, Aldo Leopold talks about, okay, I'm going to bring this up, but now, I got, now I'm caught in a trap. I got to dig a little bit deeper. Aldo Leopold's talking about technology. He's talking specifically about hunting technology. And he was saying that like, that you can't improve the well, you can't improve the pump without improving the well. Yeah. He's not talking about oil rigs. He's talking about water. Yep, water. But meaning, if you're going to make it easier and easier and easier to extract more and more and more water, you're going to have to figure out a way to make the well better too. Deeper and better and purer. Yeah. Because you will suck that bitch dry if you're not thinking about both. And when I think about, that's like kinds of winds up being that, that partisan battle I was talking about earlier. Yeah. I feel that like, that from the right, we're like the, the right side of me, okay? The right leaning, right wing leaning side of me is usually very interested in like improving the pump. Yeah, yeah. Right? Improving access, democratically allocated public access to wildlife. Like I like right, that to resources for us to use renewable resources, wildlife resources. The left leaning side of me is like, and let's make the well deep and wide. Yep. 
Well, right? and and to Yanni's point on the legacy, one of my favorite quotes that Roosevelt had was about conservation and stating that it means preservation and development. And he recognized the rights, maybe he didn't say rights, but he recognized the needs to use these resources, but he didn't appreciate or recognize the rights to steal those from future generations. Paraphrasing a lot there, but conservation is about development and preservation. We've talked about this a thousand times before, but exactly. when I'm going to tell the story again. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt, right, was very interested in preserving wildlife and saving wildlife. And so, and there had been a argument where someone said, so if the wildlife, if F is as you're saying, that wildlife belongs to the American people, we're Americans, let us in there and let us go get it all since it's ours anyways. And he says, well, yes, it belongs to you but it also belongs to those in the womb of time. The womb of time. Yep. It's not all yours right now. Some is yours right now. Some is for those who will follow. Man, do we need Leopold and Roosevelt back, don't we? Somebody, some big thinkers in political. As my buddy Doug Dern puts it, when, when speaking of uh, his family farm has been in his family for generations. And when when think when thinking about decisions around his family farm he says of, of him and his siblings you know he'll be like it's not ours it's our turn it's our turn yep great way to think about it yeah i don't know if doug made that up or not but he likes it <laughs> and i like it doesn't matter it's profound all right do you got any <laughs> you got any final thoughts ed i just hope i kill an elk next week i need to fill my freezer and take from today and and uh leave a little for tomorrow leave a little for tomorrow <laughs> nah, it's been great talking again it's my fourth time you guys need to uh, come up with a five timers jacket or something if we ever do this yeah like again. a letterman like, jacket says yeah, need like, your podcast on the like, back like saturday night live <laughs> they do the five timers yeah <laughs> well what we'll do is in a year we're going to come talk to you and see where year, we're at yeah, 52 episodes from now we're going to come to talk to you about sage grouse again we'll see where we're at i hope we're in a good place I'm still optimistic, but cautious optimism. I hope that next we'll year when we're talking about it, they'll keep we'll, this birds, sage grouse will be banging into the windows. <laughs> There's so many out there. They're just like errantly flying around and coming in the house and we're throwing them out the door. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, as this defines the conservation model for the future, we need to learn from it and grow and build and, and look to the next one. And, and getting, don't make the same mistakes twice. Isn't that the definition of insanity? Yeah. Keep trying the same thing over and hoping you get a different result. Doesn't work. Learn, right. learn from the mistakes of the past. Thanks again, Ed. 52 episodes from now, we will talk again. <laughs> I appreciate you guys. Keep doing what you're doing. Thanks, Ed. Okay, a couple things, though, before you go. Oh, you got add-ons, yeah? Yeah. We appreciate all the reviews and the ratings. You guys are killing it on that. But I know, because I see how many there are, that there are still thousands of you out there that have not written a review and have not gave, given us a rating. And Steve prefers oh, it. Ed just raised his hand. You Steve, never gave a rating, Ed? Steve, prefer, <laughs> Steve <laughs> prefers it if you just do the five-star one. If you're not going to do the five-star one, don't bother. Oh, yeah, don't give it like a low rating. No, you know what? <laughs> I don't care what kind of rating. No, no, don't. Just give it. 
Just go. I always say, just to make it easy for you, go to the rightmost star and click it. You've never given it a rating, Ed? I've never seen the stars on what I'm listening <laughs> uh, the way I'm listening to it. I'm, I've looked. You've got to go to iTunes. Come on, dude. Right, you, here's the thing. Why. People uh, don't realize. Yeah, that's why I'm not on iTunes. People don't realize how helpful it is to us to go and give the damn five-star rating. Write whatever you want. No one's going to care. Ed, I would think that you'd be on it being like, man, I've been on the show four times. <laughs> you'd think so. <laughs> Love it. I'd well, give these guys six stars. I'd give them six. Available. But you guys know my Bazaar. Everything you do is six star. <laughs> Ten star. Go and give ratings. But I will go find it. But I'm not on iTunes. That's maybe why. Well, give it a, that doesn't matter. Give it I'll a rating it out. out. What, however you listen. Mm-hmm. Stitcher, iTunes. I mean, there's like the vast, the, like those two cover the vast majority of people you can go to the to the and listen right there however you're doing it go give it a mega five star right, rating and then you know write your thoughts down no one read your thoughts just put down yeah the stars I what bet. else yanni uh be on the lookout for the meateater.com big black friday sale it's coming at you yeah, you get a Meat Eater Podcast t-shirt. That's the Friday after Thanksgiving, if you're not hip to Black Friday. And that means that um, it's a day that people like to shop. That's right. I believe after Black Friday, now there's a Cyber Monday. Yeah, yep, and that's thing. when you buy shit online. Mm-hmm. So do all that. What else, Yanni? Um, if you're looking for a pocket knife, you need to go to Benchmade and check out their pocket knives, especially check out their new bug out. I just got a bug oh, out. Yeah. It's a sweet little knife. Did Dude, you get one too? No, but he yeah. showed me one. It's light. It's simple. I like it. The only reason I got one is because of being a dumbass and I walked into the airport with my G10 on my clip on my belt, so I had to leave it. Oh, so you got, a new, you got the new bug out? Yeah. Like a super lightweight little knife. Yeah. Like super, let's say having like a paper clip on your pocket. Exactly. Exactly. Hey, did, I, did, did you ever hear us talk about this, Ed, the, in the Ketchikan airport? It's like the thing that brings me the most happiness in all the world outside of my own children in hunting. <laughs> is it... In the Ketchikan Airport, there's a display, and my wife. <laughs> I got your back. There's baby. a display of, of stuff they've confiscated from people. <laughs> there's in this display is a is a full on brass knuckles dagger. No kidding. Yeah. Oh man. Where I guys like that. traveling with a brass knuckles dagger. Yeah. It's the greatest. I've seen like, one of those cases, but I've never seen a brass knuckles dagger. It's just dagger. like the greatest. Like, what do you mean I can't have uh <laughs> I can't bring this on? Yeah, and it's got a really nice <laughs> fancy bench made knife in there. Oh yeah, there's some there's some like quality blades in there mm-hmm. too, but there's some crazy stuff that people try to bring on planes. Well, ask Ronnie Bame about that sometime. I don't want to go into details, but you might want to ask him like <laughs> about TSA rules, how to get letters from the TSA. <laughs> what else? That? That's all I got. Five stars. Hey, check this out. Uh, last time we asked for stars, a bunch of people came and gave stars, and it, it, it's good for us. It was really helpful. I don't want to, I'm not going to explain all why, but, it, it, but it's good to give them their stars. Also, as long as we're on the subject of you helping me, us, is if you go on all the time, and you're like, now and then you're like, oh, I'm going to go listen to the Meat Eater podcast, uh, subscribe, right? That's hugely helpful. If you subscribe and it just comes to you automatically, that's good for you. Because it eases you into good listening, and it's good for us because it just it's like it's like a demonstration of of of, of reach. So subscribe, 
five stars. Black Friday. Right? With the Monday. The Monday. <laughs> Cyber Monday. And also, throw your support. Uh, there's so many great conservation groups out there that generally you'll find speak with a pretty unified voice. So if, if you're a hunter or a fisherman and you're, and you're hearing about complicated things and you're reluctant or leery about wading into something and advocating a certain viewpoint without knowing all the sides, it is a smart idea to just kind of go and do a survey about where leading national conservation groups like, where are they making stands on certain issues? And, and I think that you'll find that on a lot of these issues, you'll find, like, pretty good cohesion around reasonable policies and policy solutions. Uh, I like the work of the TRCP, just as I like the work of many conservation groups, some of which I've named here today. But um, check them out. Check out others, too. And go sort of gather up like how people in the conservation space and the hunting and fishing space, how are they looking at wildlife issues, resource management issues, and begin to educate yourself that way. And you hopefully will find groups that kind of resonate with you and you can throw your support behind them. But start out by just kind of like take a look at sort of the, the national picture of how these conversations are going and, and start to learn about it. And then you'll want to, I think, hopefully – you want to start exercising, uh, you know, flexing some of your personal muscle by, by getting behind these groups and making good hunting and fishing for not just you, but your kids and their kids. All right. That's it for me. And I can tell you it makes a difference. Everything Steve said, having worked in this arena now, it works, and it does make a difference. You're talking to five make stars, your- right? The five no. stars, <laughs> the six stars works even better. The five stars works, but conservation advocacy works too. It really does. And we make sure it works by amplifying your voice. So we appreciate you saying that. All right. Stay tuned. Hey, you ever needed something for your home, but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep. You can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. Two thirds of Americans are at risk of experiencing an electrical blackout. You could be one of them sitting in the dark and cold for hours, for days, maybe even weeks. Are you ready to protect your family? You could be with the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X. These things are sweet because this generator has double the capacity and is expandable. Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater to get your solar generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater.